0: Most murderers want to get out of Dodge as soon as possible after they kill. Sure, they might take pictures or souvenirs or even return to the scene later, but they don't stick around for long. They don't move into the victim's house. They don't empty the fridge. They don't feed the family dog or take it outside for walks. But the killer I'm looking at today did all of that. They spent days at the crime scene and then slipped out the back, never to be found. This is the story of one of Germany's most infamous unsolved crimes, the Hinterkaifeck Massacre. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. On this show, I'm taking you on a world tour of 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries. Today, I'm heading to a tiny town in Germany where an entire family was violently murdered on their farm in 1922. The investigation revealed a web of village feuds, incest, and even claims of paranormal activity. At one point, there were over a 100 suspects. And yet... The killer has never been identified. All of that is coming up. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
0: The economy was tanking. Most families lost someone in the war. The survivors were barely scraping by on low-paying jobs. And by September 1921, a housemaid named Cresens Rieger is at her wit's end. For almost a year, she's been working for the Gruber family at the Kaifek farm about 40 miles north of Munich. But she's absolutely had it with the farm and the family. Her boss is Victoria Gabriel, a 35-year-old mother of two. She has a seven-year-old daughter named Cecilia and a little two-year-old boy named Josef. Victoria's husband, Carl, vanished in the war, and it's presumed he was killed in action. With Carl gone, Victoria technically owns the farm, but it's her father, Andreas Gruber, who really runs the place. And he is not a nice guy. He's got an explosive temper. Even the neighbors tend to stay clear of him. And his wife, Cecilia Sr., isn't any better. She's a bit of a shrew, even though she works her tail off around the farm. The two of them are notoriously stingy, even though there are rumors that they're actually sitting on a fortune inherited from Carl's family. Whether those rumors are true or not, the family doesn't pay their maid Crescens enough to keep her around, especially not with the ghosts in the house. Crescens lives in a tiny room on the side of the farmhouse, and she hears footsteps in the attic, like, all the time. It sounds like someone's been living above her room for the past few months. But whenever she peeks up into the dark rafters, there's nothing but hay and sawdust. It isn't that Crescens is making this up. Andreas, Victoria, and her little daughter all hear the footsteps sometimes, too but they don't seem to care about the effect it's having on their maid. The thudding in the attic keeps Crescens up all night, and the sleep deprivation is making her thin, pale, and skittish. Then, if that wasn't bad enough, she starts seeing shadows in the field outside her window, like like there are people watching the house. One night, she spots two figures moving outside, and she's freaked out enough that she yells at them to go away. One of them looks right at her, and then they turn and disappear into the woods. Later that night, Crescens' bedroom door keeps opening and closing all by itself. Crescens complains to Andreas and Cecilia, but they just wave her off. A month later, Crescens is finally just like, that's it, I'm out. She quits without a second thought and moves out. The Grubers manage to press on without Crescens over the winter, but the weird events only get worse. Not long after Crescent leaves, Andreas finds a newspaper from Munich laying in the yard, which is weird because none of the family have been to Munich and they never have visitors. It obviously didn't get there by itself. And it seems like whoever brought the newspaper to the farm maybe never left. Because Andreas discovers footprints leading out of the woods all the way up to the farmhouse and there aren't any tracks leading away. Obviously, Andreas wants to get to the bottom of this. He loads up his rifle and heads into the attic, but there's nothing there. He checks the barn, and he checks the machine shed, and that's where he finds the mangled lock. It's like something chewed on the metal. It's all torn up and gouged. Someone could have done it with a pry bar, but it would have taken a long time and made a heck of a racket, and the family hasn't heard anything like that. Andreas wonders if he's been robbed, but he can't find anything missing. It's like someone destroyed the lock on the machine shed just so they could get in later. Andreas is nervous enough to mention these things to a few neighbors, although he doesn't want to involve the authorities. He just fixes the lock himself, and he keeps his rifle at the ready, just in case... And then one day, one of the family's house keys disappears. Andreas searches high and low, but the key is gone. And sure, it could have just gotten misplaced, but with the broken lock, the footprints, and now this, it seems like somebody is lurking around and they're making sure that the Grubers aren't safe in their own home. But for some reason, maybe a desperate hope that it's all a coincidence, the Grubers don't do anything about this. They don't call the police. They don't even change the lock. They just keep going about their lives as if nothing is wrong. By the time spring rolls around, the family finally hires a new maid. Her name is Maria Baumgartner, and she moves in on the afternoon of March 31st, 1922, Maria's sister comes along to help move in her things, and once Maria's settled into her room, she says goodbye. She doesn't know it at the time, but she is the last person to see Maria or the Gruber's alive. Coming up, I'll look at what happened when the murderer moved in.
2: Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos, With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alistair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crying Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
0: Friday, March 31st is the last time anyone sees the Gruber family or their new maid, Maria. But nobody realizes anything's wrong for several more days because even though the farm is dead silent, there are plenty of signs that someone is still in the house. The next morning, a Saturday, a pair of traveling salesmen come by the farm. They knock on the door, but the whole farm is dead silent. As they leave, the men notice the door to the machine shed is wide open. Next is the postman. He drops off the mail that afternoon, and he doesn't see anyone either, but he does hear the Gruber's dog. Their tiny Pomeranian is somewhere in the barn, barking its head off. And this is pretty typical, not just because it's a pom-pom, but because this dog hates everybody. The only time it's not in the yard being a nuisance is when it's tied up. The postman doesn't think anything of it and continues on his route. But when he comes back on Monday, Saturday's mail is right where he left it, which is odd. Usually, mail piling up is an obvious sign that no one's home, but there's something else that the postman notices. There's no sign of the dog, and for once, it's not barking, which means someone must have moved it out of the barn. One night, a local carpenter passes Kaifek on his way home. He spots somebody out in the yard with a flashlight burning something in the outdoor fireplace. And whatever it is, it absolutely reeks. The smell is enough to make the carpenter stop. But when he does, the figure shines the light right in his eyes. He freaks out a little bit and hurries away while the figure disappears into the darkness. By this point, the villagers are noticing that Hinterkaifeck Farm is eerily quiet. The Gruber's weren't in church that weekend, and little Chichilia isn't in school. However, the family isn't exactly well-liked, so nobody's that concerned about looking for them. And Groburn, like many small towns, is a pretty private community. The villagers are kind of just like, hey, your home, your business. This is so ingrained into the culture that when a repairman named Albert shows up for an appointment on Tuesday morning, he waits over an hour for someone to let him in. The whole time, he doesn't bother looking around. He just hangs out in the yard kicking stones or whatever. But here's the weird thing. Albert isn't just waiting around because of German politeness. He can't actually get to the equipment he needs to fix because the machine shed door is now locked. This is the same door that the salesman saw open on Saturday morning. Somebody had locked it between then and Tuesday, maybe even the same person who's caring for the dog, which now is nowhere in sight. Eventually, Albert decides enough is enough. While it's apparently forbidden to look around the house, Albert's got no problem breaking into the machine shed. He finally just takes apart the door and goes to work. Albert doesn't see anybody during the four hours he's working in the shed, but when he heads out, he notices the dog is now tied to a post in the yard. So someone is obviously home, but they seem to be hiding from Albert. After he leaves, he's creeped out enough to mention it to one of the nearest neighbors, a guy named Lawrence Schlittenbauer. Lawrence lives just up the road, so he sends his two young sons to walk by the farm. They come back and confirm that the place is eerily silent. Even the dog is now nowhere to be seen. So around 5 p.m. that evening, Lawrence asks two neighbors to go with him to check on the Gruber's. They find the front door is locked, but they hear the dog whining in the barn. This is even more weird. The dog was tied up in the yard this morning, and now it's tied up inside the barn. Lawrence and the neighbors go into the barn to investigate, but it seems like nothing's wrong. I mean, there's a big pile of hay in one corner and the cows are fed and clean. Even the dog seems perfectly healthy. Then one of the neighbors spots a foot sticking out of the hay. He shouts a warning and the other neighbor backs off, but not Lawrence, he's too curious. He pulls on the foot and uncovers the first body. It's Andreas. His corpse is lying on top of his wife and his daughter. It's like their killer stacked them all carefully on top of each other before covering them with hay. There's no sign of Josef, but the younger Cecilia is sprawled out under the bodies. The wounds on them are vicious. Each of them was bludgeoned to death and their faces and skulls are destroyed from multiple blows, far more than would be necessary to simply kill them. It's like the murderer wanted to disfigure them as much as possible. It also looks like little Cecilia survived the initial attack. Clumps of her own hair are clutched in her fists as though she pulled it out as the rest of her family was murdered in front of her. And unlike the others, her throat is cut. Understandably, the three men are terrified. The two other neighbors want to bail immediately and get the police, but Lawrence says he has to go in the house. He says he needs to find mine buberel, which means my boy. Because you see, Lawrence wasn't just a neighbor. He was most likely Yosef's father. Yet this wouldn't have been such a surprise for the neighbors because the whole village knew that Lawrence and Victoria had an affair starting the year before the baby was born, which makes what happens next extra heartbreaking. Lawrence finds little Yosef in his crib with a crushed skull, just like the rest of the family. The killer also covered his tiny body with a dress, kind of like how they covered the other bodies with hay. I mean, it's almost like the killer didn't want to look at their horrible handiwork. Finally, Lawrence finds Maria's corpse down in her bedroom next to her suitcase. She hadn't even had a chance to unpack yet, and she had also been beaten to death. After he discovered all the bodies, Lawrence returned to the barn, and here's where the story gets even more bizarre. After telling the two men what he's found, Lawrence immediately starts moving things around in the barn, including the bodies. And the neighbors are like, what is this guy doing? He unties the dog, gives the cows some feed, and he's suddenly acting very calm for being at a crime scene. And weirdest of all, the neighbors realize Wait, how did Lawrence get into the house? When they arrived, it was locked. And for a minute, they're confused. And then they notice Lawrence has a key. And if you remember, one of the house keys disappeared before the murders. And now, voila, Lawrence has one. And... Funny enough, when the key went missing, Lawrence was actually the first person Andreas suspected because he knew that he wanted to be with Victoria. In fact, when Victoria got pregnant a few years back, Lawrence wanted to marry her and raise Josef as his son. But Andreas nipped that romance in the bud. Because, and stay with me here, Andreas himself also might have been Josef's father. Yeah, Apparently, Andreas had an incestuous relationship with his daughter for years. The rumor said that the sexual activity started all the way back in 1903, when Victoria was just 16 years old, which would be considered statutory rape today. In 1915, Andreas and Victoria were even formally charged with incest, or blood disgrace in German, and Andreas served a year in prison for it. Victoria also went to jail for a month. The two neighbors who came with Lawrence to investigate know all these rumors about him and the family. So they're already uncomfortable and they're not about to wait around a murder scene with a guy who seems way too comfortable moving corpses. They bail and go get the police, leaving Lawrence alone at the scene. But the cops are several hours away. And gossip tends to be the primary form of communication around here, so news of the murder spreads fast. Soon, neighbors are pouring onto the farm, traipsing all over the crime scene, poking at the bodies and moving things around. And Lawrence, who's still hanging around the house, is basically giving them tours of the place. He leads neighbors through the barn to see the corpses, and the whole time he's acting totally Calm, like he's more concerned about caring for the animals than for the bodies of his former lover and possible son. The local cops show up a while later, but they immediately see this is far beyond their pay grade. In this rural region, any violence among neighbors is rare, much less a multiple homicide. So they send for a detective from Munich, who arrives a little after midnight. The detective, Inspector Reingruber, brings a police photographer with him. But he takes just five photos of the crime scene, including one that stages the bodies as they were found before Lawrence moved them. Other than those five photos and the bodies, Reingruber collects no physical evidence. He thinks it's a pretty open and shut case. It was just a botched home invasion and robbery. After all, everyone had heard the rumors that the Grubers had a stash of cash in the house. But the thing is, the cash is still there. A bunch of gold and silver, right in plain sight. And nobody notices anything else of value missing. So robbery is out as a motive. This is something else. When Ryan Gruber interviews the two neighbors, they tell him all about Lawrence's weird behavior and the rumors about him and Victoria. They have no problem fingering Lawrence as a suspect. But Lawrence has an alibi. He was at home with his wife and sons. Now, that's hardly airtight, but enough for Rheingruper. He doesn't bother checking into it or pursuing Lawrence as a lead at all. I mean, besides, it's the middle of the night and Rheingruper is tired. He figures he's looked over the scene and the body he's got the photos. Why even bother sticking around? After just a few hours, he calls it quits and heads back to Munich. And he never comes back. After Ryan Gruber leaves, no official investigator ever visits the farm. No one ever questions Lawrence, at least not for years. And a few days later, the family's bodies are buried in a nearby churchyard. But the investigation isn't completely over yet. See, before the bodies were buried, Ryan Gruber and the coroner removed one last piece of evidence. The victim's head's The severed heads, and just the heads, were sent to Munich for further investigation, which, to Reingruber, means bringing them to a psychic. Coming up, I'll look at the strange sources the police used to find leads. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even
1: this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and relove our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com circular. Visit ikea-usa.com circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products.
0: And now back to the story. After the violent murders of the Gruber family, the police really take their sweet time investigating, or not investigating. Inspector Reingruber only stayed a few hours before returning to the city, and that was in the middle of the night. From then on, the entire case is investigated by telephone and by psychic power. The Munich cops have the coroner separate the family's heads from the bodies before they're buried. Since they were all killed by blows to the skull, the cops figure that the heads might have the strongest psychic connection to the killer. This is obviously strange, but it doesn't seem quite so strange to the people in Munich at the time. You see, in post-war Germany, people wanted to talk to their dead loved ones, so spiritualism and psychic seances were super popular. So, police bring the heads and a book of mugshots to a medium in the city. Unfortunately, the psychic only pinpoints a single lead, a man who fled a nearby mental asylum the year before the massacre. But nobody's seen him since, and there's literally no other evidence that the escaped patient was anywhere near Hinterkaifeck. So the psychic strikes out. Luckily, the Munich police force has some tools other than psychics. After a bit of good old police work, Rein Gruber finds somebody in the village of Groburn who is more than willing to talk. It's Crescens Rieger, the former maid who was so terrified of Hinterkaifeck that she quit. And now she's naming names. The first suspects Crescens calls out are two brothers, Anton and Carl Bickler, who worked the harvest in the previous fall. They knew their way around Hinterkaifeck, and according to Crescens, Anton hated the Grubers. He often said they all deserved to die. There's another piece of evidence pointing to Anton, the dog. The yappy Pomeranian that hated everybody actually loved Anton and never barked at him. He easily could have stayed at the farm after the murders taking care of the dog without arousing suspicion. And get this, Crescens also says Anton and Carl used to creep around the farm spying on her through her window. She now claims they were the weird shadowy figures she used to see in the yard. So this seems like a great lead. These brothers know the farm, hate the family, and are the only people who could get close to the dog. But the more Crescent talks, the more it all starts to fall apart. She seems to be an equal opportunity accuser. She points to more farmhands and even another set of brothers as possible suspects. And in each case, she seems more adamant about the men coming around to the farm to bother her than about the killings. It's soon obvious to the police that Cresens just holds a grudge. There's virtually no evidence that any of the men she accuses actually returned to the farm after they worked the harvest. So the cops don't take her testimony too seriously. But at least they have a suspect list now, covering dozens of people in the village and surrounding region. They put out a reward for more information, 100,000 German marks, which is a pretty penny for the time. But instead of bringing out actual witnesses, the reward just inspires more locals to chime in with their own personal grudges. Everyone's accusing their least favorite neighbors, almost like it's a game. Part of that's because the Grubers were kind of the town pariahs. Remember, people literally came from miles around to gawk at their bodies at the crime scene. Especially with all the rumors of incest and infidelity, the murder investigation seems more like a soap opera than a tragedy to a lot of the locals. Eventually, the suspect list is so out of control and the police are so desperate that they even consider a dead man as a suspect. Victoria's husband... So again, Carl Gabriel was presumed killed in World War I, but his body was never recovered. And according to people who knew Carl, before the war, he always said he wanted to move to Russia. It's possible Carl survived the war, ran off to Russia, and started a new life. I mean, it's not hard to understand why. The incest charges were a stain on the family's name, which means a lot in a small community like this. And the Gruber family was unpleasant, so maybe he wanted to be done with them. But if Carl heard through the grapevine that Victoria had another baby with another man, it might have enraged him enough to come back to Hinterkaifeck with the intent to kill. At least, that's what cops think. But of course, this theory all relies on the assumption that Carl is still alive. A few soldiers who fought in the war with him swear they saw his body in the trenches. So in all likelihood, Carl actually is dead. The police don't scratch him off their list, but they also don't pursue this lead too carefully. Still, since the list of suspects now includes dead people, it seems obvious that the police have mostly washed their hands of the case. Within a few months of the murder, Inspector Reingruber and the Munich police stop interviewing suspects and witnesses. Less than a year after the murder, the village tears down the farmhouse and the barn at Hinterkeifek. But as the villagers tear apart the attic, they find something hidden in the rafters, the murder weapon. It's a bloody mattock, which is a tool like a pickaxe, but smaller, And it matches the wounds perfectly. But there are no fingerprints on it. And since this is the 1920s, there's no way to analyze the blood or hair still stuck to the blade. But that doesn't matter because the owner comes forward. It's Lawrence. He says the mattock belonged to him, but that Andreas stole it sometime in the year before the murder. One of the farmhands admits that they saw Andreas with the mattock during that time frame, so the story checks out. Unfortunately, if the tool was already at the farm before the murders, that means anybody could have grabbed it to use as a bludgeon. Without fingerprints, the weapon isn't useful evidence at all. So Lawrence is in the clear, but now there are serious concerns about this guy around town. Why would he come forward so quickly about owning the murder weapon unless he knew it was going to tie him to the killing? It almost seems like he was trying to get ahead of the questions and cast the blame elsewhere. But it doesn't quite work, because over the next few years, Lawrence keeps acting weird. In 1925, about three years after the murder, the village schoolteacher finds Lawrence on the old site of the Hinterkaifeck farmhouse. He's crouching over the old cellar doorway, which is really just a hole in the ground at this point. The teacher asks him what he's doing, and Lawrence freaks out. He's noticeably caught off guard, like stuttering and shaking. Lawrence says something about how the frozen ground is so difficult to dig into, and then he says that the murderer tried to bury the grouper's bodies but couldn't because of the hard ground. The teacher is so alarmed at the way Lawrence says this, almost like, It's a memory that he reports it to the police. This is a bombshell. No witness or police report ever mentioned any sign that the killer tried to bury the bodies. The police interview Lawrence one last time, but when he comes in for questioning, he's perfectly calm again. In fact, they find him so charming and honest that they clear him once and for all. But the rest of the town still thinks Lawrence knows something. For years afterwards, people refer to him as the killer. Lawrence takes several locals to court for slander for it and wins. But the accusations plague him for the rest of his life until he dies in 1941. And by that point, there are so many suspects and so little evidence that nobody has a full picture of what happened at Hinterkaifeck. The farm is gone, the bodies are long buried, and the family's skulls are destroyed in a bombing during World War II. Even the bloody murder weapon somehow disappears from police storage in Munich. By 1955, the police finally close the file on Hinterkaifeck. They don't think it's ever going to be solved. Half a century later, though, the German cops decide to take one last look at the case. In 2007, a police academy uses the cold case as a training exercise for a new class of cadets. Each cadet re-examines the case files, and all of them agree on a single suspect as the likely murderer. So, case close. Mystery solved, right? But hold on, because here's the bad news. To protect the reputation of the suspect's family, the cadets kept their conclusion a secret— after all, without the evidence, they can't prove anything. So we're just left to guess who they pointed the finger at. So draw whatever conclusions you want. Today, all that's left of Kaifek is a small plaque in the middle of an empty field. Even the nearby village is empty. And the Gruber family has mostly been forgotten. Only the mystery survives, and now, a century later, it's safe to say the Hinterkaifeck murders will always remain unsolved. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be back with another stop on our True Crime World Tour. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of International Infamy was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Cara Macerlein, and research by Chelsea Wood. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out Crime Junkie and all AudioChuck originals.
2: Hi there, it's Alistair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Summerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify.